And we ended up, it's kind of like a rivalry. We'd put a song out, and Brian would hear it, then he'd do one, which is nice, like me and John. He eventually came out with this God Only Knows. It's a, it's a great song, I love it, you know, it's just one of my, it's, it's my favorite song. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Sail On Podcast. This is Wyatt in Nashville. I'm joined by the king himself, Jason Brewer. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> and today we have a lot to get into. Um, so let's, uh, let's get started with some emails. First up is an email from Grant Thompson. Hey, Wyatt. Hey, Jason. Before this becomes a rambling mess, I have to say how great the podcast is. It's great. Really love the laid-back vibe of two buddies talking about something they love. Laid-back, but not lazy. I really appreciate all the research that goes into each episode. The songs fill my heart, and the info fills my mind. Edutainment at its finest. (laughs) There was a copy of 20 Golden Greats in my house when I was young, but I mostly remember the cover more than the songs. The 80s come along, and Kokomo is huge, and I clearly remember California Dreamin', but it's not until 97 when Boogie Nights comes out, and I hear God Only Knows. It can't be for the first time, but this time, at the risk of sounding melodramatic, something happens when I hear it. Pretty sure I buy pet sounds within days, and I'm all in. The Capitol Twofers are out at this time, and I take no prisoners. I can't get enough. I live in the burbs of Vancouver, BC, and I can't understand why I have not met more fans. I mean, come on, they are the best band of all time. But thanks to you guys, I know there is a grant in towns across the world, and that is a good feeling. The world today just seems so nuts, and everyone is a badass, and this is why we need the Beach Boys. They show you love is still important, and it's alright to be afraid and vulnerable. And I don't think I'm going out on a limb here by saying that if more people listened to the boys, we would be in better shape. Wow, sorry for the link. Let me wrap this up. Okay, favorite album, Sunflower, Love You Is Close. I sang the hell out of I Want to Pick You Up When My Kids Were Babies. Anyway, thank you for all you guys do to make this podcast happen. And I'm happy to be a patron. Regards, Grant Thompson. Well, Grant, the thing that struck me about your email most is that you kind of hit the nail on the head. And it is what we have learned with this podcast, that there is a Grant in every town. And um, we love hearing from all the Grants, especially you, Grant. Thanks a lot, Grant. Thank you for writing, and I'm glad that uh, we're helping you feel less alone and also more vulnerable somehow at the same time. Uh, and one more, we have an uh, email from Cheryl Preeti. Hi, guys. I just wanted to drop a quick email to you to tell you how much I'm enjoying the podcast. I've only listened to five episodes so far but I'm fascinated by everyone and the detail you go into regarding my favorite band of all time. Before I discovered the podcast, I honestly didn't think there was anyone out there who loves this band as much as I do, but I admit it, you guys beat me. 
It's probably a given that my favorite album is Pet Sounds, no surprise there. It's just not my favorite album by the guys, but my favorite album of all time. I honestly think some of the most beautiful music I've ever heard is contained within this album, and nothing else comes close. But if we're talking albums other than Pet Sounds, my personal favorites would have to be either The Beach Boys Today or 2020, which may not be a popular choice, but I've always had a fondness for it, particularly Cabin Essence, Never Learn Not to Love, and Do It Again, the latter of which sounds like classic early Beach Boys. Well, to me anyway. Thanks for starting the podcast, and I hope you continue to record for many, many episodes. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on everything Beach Boy related, their later years, and especially your thoughts on Mike Love for obvious reasons. Thanks again, guys. Cheryl. Well, Cheryl, I too really enjoy 2020. I know Wyatt has some fondness for good pieces of that record too. 2020 was interesting for me. I remember when I first listened to it i didn't love it it was kind of like uh why do they throw smile stuff on here but the sound of that record doesn't sound like anything else they did and it it's a pretty cool sound it's kind of this interesting transitional time where it still sounds kind of 60s but it's definitely leaning toward where they went with um sunflower and you know a lot of that had to do with their engineer their great engineer steve desper so i know around these parts we're some big steve desper fans so 2020 is right up our alley it kind of was a collection of some leftover songs in a way so i think for that reason some people um don't love it as much as the albums previous and and post um but i mean there's some great songs on there, let's be honest. Um, yeah, I know you're a big fan of Time to Get Alone, as am I. Yeah, and also, you know, that that song's great, and obviously Cabin Essence is brilliant, um, and Do It Again, but, you know, those are all songs that were recorded previously. Um, so, for what it is, I mean, it's it's got a lot of great, great music on it, and I really enjoyed hearing a lot of the outtakes that came out um, digitally last year. But... Um, Hopefully you've caught up with the podcast and you will get to hear your email. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you very much for listening. All right. So today I wanted to bring on another guest and somebody who is pretty much responsible for not only my existence, but my love of the Beach Boys. And that's my father. So I wanted to bring him on to share his perspective and his story. I think you guys will enjoy it. Southern California in the early 60s, man, it was a lot of fun. A lot of surfing, drag races, and riding the surf. So wax up your board, and let's hang 10 with the Beach Boys. Hey guys, we are fortunate to have uh, my own flesh and blood today. My father, uh, Brent Funderburg. What's up, Dad? Hey, sunny boy. <laughs> so, do you remember, Dad, the first time that you heard the Beach Boys? 
Well, you know, I was born in 52, so the first album came out in 62. I was 10 years old. I'm sure that I heard it on the radio. My parents were not gigantically musical, but we did have a radio, and sometimes, you know, television, the Beach Boys would, would appear, sometimes like Ed Sullivan or Jack Benny or something. But I remember that. Not really tremendously until you start driving. So that, say 15, 16, then you can control the radio. Or I had a transistor. So, yeah, I listened and loved vocals. So it was the Beatles and the Beach Boys from very, very early on, say probably nine, well, 10, 10, 11 years old. I was curious about if you remembered buying a Beach Boys 45 or an LP, um, like when you're in middle school or anything like that. Oh, absolutely. Or if your dad bought it for you or what? what oh, not. oh, absolutely. My parents would buy me strange records, like fake Beatles bands that they got at the discount, like the Dovells or something. It was really bad stuff. Of course, they had nice <laughs> yeah. clothes on and their hair was combed. So um, I remember buying, saving our money, my money at, with my twin brother. Maybe we'd go in together. Instead of buying a model car or a model of Frankenstein at the at the Woolworths of the Roses, we'd go to their record counter where singles were, and we saw, of course, the Capitol Records, which is usually Beach Boys or the Beatles, and we'd buy a single at first because you could afford that. I guess it was like 50 cents or something. And then an album was like maybe $1.99 or $2.99. So I remember buying the first Beach Boys album that I bought, and I don't know exactly what caused this. Maybe it's just I had that much money was Best of the Beach Boys Volume 1. And that was in about 65, 66. So I would have been, what, 14 years old. And that was a time, 13, 14, consciously becoming aware of music, got a, a microphone and an amplifier with my brother's guitar. We formed a band. The first band was called the Echoes. I don't know if you knew that. And we played <laughs> Beach Boys. No and Beatles in the garage where it echoed. We didn't have enough singers, so you sang with your echo, and I tried to sing all the parts like you do, Wyatt. Anyway, <laughs> long long answer. But yeah, I definitely remember the dawning and getting that album and fighting for the headphones, trying to listen to Best of Beach Boys Volume 1, because um, there was only one set of headphones, and usually Dad had them uh, in the house. So that's my answer there. Um, did you and, and your brother have a hi-fi set like of your own, or did, did you have to share one with, with, with mom and dad or what? Oh, yeah, it was a big sharing family thing. And, yeah. um, you know, because of the nature of our music, usually unless they were not home, we couldn't listen out loud to things like Beatles and Beach Boys that I recall. It was usually Andy Williams or Persuasive Percussion or eventually Herb Alpert, stuff like that. And at the most, it was Peter, Paul, and Mary that we all, that we shared as a family. But So we'd get under the headphones, and I remember, honestly and truly, my twin brother and I sharing headphones. Like, I, we'd get our head into one set of headphones. He'd have the left, I'd have the right, which was really insane, But because we were fighting to hear you know that great music. I remember having epiphanies listening to, say, uh, Catch a Wave on on i think it was on volume one but i just remember listening to, to catch a wave and just killing me and over and over and over again which is a thing that i do now as an artist in the studio listen to music over and over and over again and i remember looking at the pictures on the album and loving the closed eyes and the headphones in the studio and the brian wilson saying Shh, to the other guys and imagining almost as i sang badly under the headphones that i was one of the beach boys so um, you went to school for art in East Carolina University, and then you also worked in a record store and did art displays in college. 
for upcoming releases and concerts and such like that. So if you don't mind talking a little bit about that experience. Oh yeah, absolutely. I hope you have a few hours here because um, <laughs> my the, the backtrack or the bottom track of my life was really music before art. And I kept trying, I wasn't that great a musician, wondered why I, I, I loved it so much and what I was going to do with it. But of course, I found out I was maybe better at art. So, but it was always art and music. I went to college, studied, you know, traditional classical painting and and all of those things. Got into graphic design. Decided I didn't want to do that, but I did love illustration, which is kind of a way to get into the album cover world. And and I was in the you know when I went to college, I was in that dust jacket in Wonderland period in the 1970s where so many things were coming out that were incredibly beautiful. Maybe, you know, starting with uh, Sgt. Pepper's and the idea that an album should resonate with the music. And there's a concept that runs through everything. There were cutaways and pop-ups and albums with zippers and scratch and sniff, like the, the raspberries and black albums and green albums. And it was just amazing time. And I said, man, this is what I want to do. So fortunately, when I was in college, in addition to trying to train to be an illustrator, painter, I uh, worked for a record company, a record uh, store that was, you know, the catbird seat it was like the coolest place to be i mean you figure out people have to go there for their music you can't really get it any other way and it's hard for people with computers and internet to believe that but that was the place and um after i did the cash register a few times they forcibly took me away from the the money and and i was able to do signs and posters and displays and it was great because I, I remember doing um, Todd Rundgren. I remember doing probably some Beach Boys stuff, some individual Beatles, because this was like 1973 to maybe 1978, great period. And I did window displays that won awards, regional and national awards. One of them was I won first prize in a national London records uh, competition. And I was to go to Abbey Road and possibly meet Paul McCartney. And um, that was incredible. Uh but it was the same weekend as my wedding with my wife, your mother, uh, in 1977. So I decided to um, not marry her and go <laughs> to meet Paul McCartney. No, no. I t actually, the, the, you, the other part was that you could take a thousand bucks, and that was a lot of money in 1977. Yeah. So instead of going to England, I took a thousand bucks. The other part, the Beach Boys part, I'm bringing it back around, Wyatt, um, was that. Um, in searching for a job in 70, 78, after I got my master's degree um, in illustration, I sent out a whole bunch of stuff to different companies, hoping record companies and design companies and so forth. Only got one real call that was kind of an offer at that point, and it was from actually Kitty Hawk Graphics, which was run by who at that time, Wyatt? Do you remember? Dean Torrance. Of Jan and Dean, it was Dean Torrance, and I talked to either his girlfriend or his wife. I hope they're the same person, but I can't remember exactly. But she said, well, "You know what? We like your work, and um, maybe you can do some stuff for us. It's not wouldn't be full time, but could be part time." And I'm sure she didn't know that I was calling from the other coast. And then my question was, "Could I move all the way to California um, with my soon-to-be wife?" and um, you know, for part-time work? My answer was no. So somehow during that period, I got into teaching and that was great. And I was able to be an artist, but my dream of sort of the illustrator of Beach Boy and other album covers never really was fully realized, even though I have designed some album covers. So that's my story about my 
college interest. A lot of people don't know that Dean Torrance was a designer and had a, uh, a big hand in a lot of really awesome album artwork uh, in the 60s and oh, 70s. Oh, yeah, including Beach Boy, um, out, a, at least one Beach Boy album, the one that looks yeah, like Yeah, I mean, a, he, came up with the, he came up with the big logo on, like, 15 big yeah. ones, like the, the logo they used sure. for years and years. That's Dean Torrance. Yep, and he he also did the Love You. Yep. He did yep, um, MIU. He did Pacific Ocean Blue for Dennis. Yep. He did um, a bunch of Harry Nielsen, mm. and he did uh, the Turtles, uh, Sagittarius, which we've talked about before. He did um, obviously Jan and Dean. He did Everly Nitty Brothers. Nitty he did a bunch of stuff. Band, so, but Steve Martin, yeah, that's right, you know, amazing stuff. It wasn't my first choice because I already, you know, I sent out things to my first choices, the ones who did like albums that you could unfold and live in while you listen to the music i mean it was just an incredible period yeah well i joke too at the end of that period about 1977 all of a sudden as i was looking for for work the world switched from big albums to a new format and what was that wyatt starts with a c and they're small <laughs> cassette tapes yeah hell yeah i was yeah, thinking cassettes. i was trying to i was trying to figure out what your eight track came out but i guess yeah, that well, wasn't a big eight, deal eight track was kind of an anomaly it didn't last very long and they were horrible and they were yeah, always yeah. broken believe me they all came back to the store but the other thing was cassettes and all of a sudden all the album art was on a little tiny piece of paper wrapped around something and as soon as you opened it it fell out and into the toilet it was horrible and you couldn't read right. it and so it was kind of funny uh, because it was like the end of the great day for a while of of the visuals that accompanied albums. Of course, later we have video and all of that, and many ways through the internet to share the visuality of the of the band and the music. But there was a time when it dwindled down to a little teeny tiny nothing, and the music was big and the art was small. So blah 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 decided to go into teaching at that point um you know not because of the cassette because i couldn't get a job doing that so um it 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 works out because i had a son who had music and i realized that i was just a carrier your mom and i were just carriers for this talent that went into you and your brother well i appreciate you saying that um but it's obvious that uh I mean, the family, including our extended family, were always into music, and I grew up around it. I think harmony music was just kind of in my blood already. And then kind of growing up around the Beach Boys and the Beatles and all that stuff, um, whether I liked it or not, that was kind of just ingrained in me. Um, Yep. Our family would get together and make music, if you want to call it that. Um, Thank God you, you came along, and it became more like music. Uh, but all of us played something, um, amateurs and some some semi-professionals. But um, the other part, I guess, is um, music-wise, Wyatt, it didn't dawn on us that you were going to be um, really a musician until there were a couple of events. One was that instead of playing with your toys, we found you as a baby strumming on the heating vents in the floor making music, and we couldn't get you away from the heating vents because it was like a vibraphone or something. And then, of course, there's that moment that I came home from work, and you were probably 15, you can correct me on this, and you had recorded with two tape recorders different tracks, piling them up so that you recorded all of the parts of Surfer Girl. And you said, hey, Dad, listen to this. And you put it on. I said, well, that sounds like a demo recording of the Beach Boys. It's really, really good. And you said, no, Dad, I did all that. And I cried. 
Because that's a moment where I recognize that that's what you will be doing all the rest of your life. A great moment. It's 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 one of those things that uh, kind of crept in and out of my life until I was probably sixteen or seventeen, and um, and when I could really appreciate the the Beach Boys music, like the the you know when you take it to the next level when it, when you get it. I think people have that moment where it's like, oh wow, there's something here that's yeah. beyond you yeah. know surfing USA. But yeah, so going back to kind of your roots and and North Carolina, which wasn't really a hotbed for like touring acts, but the yeah. Beach Boys did come through there a few times. True, true. Um, yeah. Mom got to see them in 1965 at the Charlotte Coliseum. Oh, yeah. Um, she was so lucky with striped shirts. Yeah. And- Correct me if I'm wrong, but you got to see them at, I think, the the East Carolina University show was the first time you saw them in November you know, I, of 72. I, I think it was the first show I saw them was, uh, they, were, they were really touring Sunflower. It was a big band, and that was... 71 okay. maybe at it was either duke or chapel hill because we would travel almost every weekend with five bucks and whatever else we had to eat and there was a lot of sharing going on Con- concerts were ridiculously everywhere mostly at college campuses so we we traveled to see uh the beach boys without brian wilson of course but with a full slew of a band this was amazing i mean it had horns i'm sure daryl dragon was playing keyboards um, and it was, it was just a big band and it was fantastic. And it was with, believe it or not, Grateful Dead, but the Beach Boys were incredible and they played much of the stuff from Sunflower. The second time was in probably, I think it was 72. You can help me with that at East Carolina. And previous to that, uh, I believe I wrote a review. I and my good friend wrote a review for the newspaper of the Beach Boys new album coming out. Um, but this was this was with uh, Blondie Chaplin and Ricky Fatara, that version of the band. So they changed dramatically within a year or two. And those were the only two times I've seen the Beach Boys proper. I've seen Brian Wilson, I think, three times later, much later. Uh, I'm trying to look through, and obviously there's a lot of missing information. But I'm trying to look through my records and see what the actual shows are. Um, I could have hallucinated that. I was hallucinating a Okay, lot I found it. Okay. <laughs> no, I found it. April 24th, Wade Stadium, Duke University. That's it. Grateful Dead, New oh, Riders of the Purple Sage. Oh, yeah. Paul oh, yeah. Butterfield Blues Band and oh, Mountain. Yeah. Oh, so Mountain. That's a really yeah. big bill. That, they usually da, da, didn't da, play da, da. With, with more than two two bands. So that's a really big yeah. bill. I don't, you know, um, there, were, there were a lot of all day type concerts. There was kind of miniature Woodstocks and that kind of stuff. So that was really popular. Yeah. So then they played. East Carolina University, where you were in school, November fifth, nineteen seventy-two. It, it, it was amazing. They became. They That's a became, pretty amazing time to see them. They really became a live band, and their jams were legendary. I mean, it was like you talk about yeah. the Almond Brothers at Fillmore, the Beach Boys live during that time in seventy-two, maybe seventy-three. They were just incredible, and of course, Carl was coming out with more writing and. He was the master of ceremonies. I mean, Mike Love became kind of shy and more meditative, thank God, and um, and found you know kind of sat back in his place. And um, uh, it, it was it was it was very surprising. The Beach Boys were really transforming, and it was it was amazing. Yeah, I'm super jealous of everybody that got to see those few tours in the early '70s. It might have been the best the best live oh. group they ever had. It was it was pretty amazing. Oh yeah. Um, Getting back around to the uh, album art, for me, I always kind of overlook the album art because it's just kind of, mm-hmm. it, a lot of it just seems like it was thrown together 
at the last minute for the for the record or just they didn't put a whole lot of thought into it but there's still some really cool um some really cool covers that they did whether it's intentional or not um and some really bad ones too um <laughs> starting with five we'll do our favorite uh beach boys album covers well i have a whole bunch of them crowded into the top 10 and they don't get to five like friends right. holland all summer long all those guys are great covers and they fit in my stuff but the ones that are top i'm going to put number five is pets <laughs> because again aesthetically i don't agree with the combination of the music and and the outside however now i associate it with kind of the naivete and the goofiness and the last of their childhood moving into adulthood the color kind of fits there's green brown it's kind of there's melancholy to it as a kind of winter where they're have jackets on even in california with these animals and um the the green and yellow and brownishness kind of muted cryptic quiet um and then there's the cooper black lettering on the front then the back is like this unsophisticated haphazard anomaly of of pictures of them in striped shirts yeah like <laughs> where they went the, to uh yeah yeah, they went to Japan, and that uh, that oh. was always interesting to me because I looked at that on the record that that you bought that you gave me when I oh, when, yeah. when I kind of moved out. Yeah, I I would look at that and just be like, why are they wearing samurai God, costumes and it, holding swords? Like it has God. nothing to do with anything. It, it didn't make but they sense. Just had come and, back from Japan and had all these pictures, and they were just like, I, yeah, I let's think, throw these on the album. Yeah, the Japanese costumes made as much sense as the animals on the front which didn't make right. sense. So it was just surreal. There's a couple different stories. I've heard that they came up with the idea for the name Pet Sounds before they went to the zoo to shoot the photos. But most of the most of the accounts that I've read say that they shot the photos without having an album title. So it makes it even more kind of bizarre. Mm, and that yeah. they just kind of, and, and they didn't really know what was going on, but they went to the San Diego Zoo to shoot these photos with, um, like petting zoo goats, and later on they decided the album would be called Pet Sounds. So now I I, th I think um, it's kind of a strange cover for the for the musical content, but um, you know it's one of those things when you grow up with it, when you see it every day, and you just kind of just get used to it, and it is what it is. Yeah. And I'm, and you know, it, it, Pet yep. Sounds is you that know, cover, I, and it then on the inside you have this incredibly deep music. So. Uh, I, and that was why when I went to the record store with my whatever three dollars that I had in 1966, I had two albums I was looking at. And one was Pat Sounds and the other was the best of Beach Boys, the best of Beach Boys, either volume one or volume two. I can't remember. But and you know what? I bought the best. Of yeah, it's volume one. Was, they came out like a month apart because Pet Sounds wasn't selling well. So they threw out they threw out this compilation in a hurry to kind of I know, I you know make, I make things I better. didn't buy pet sounds at that time. It's so strange because the cover just threw me off. I said, "Is this like a Japanese version of the Beach Boys? Is this some kind of off-put, you know, strange other label thing that isn't the real Beach Boys? It's fake guys with animals." So it really threw me off until much later, and then oh my gosh! Um, then you look at the fonts, just the design of the type on the backside. Cooper Black is kind of associated with Pet Sounds on all their stuff now. But you look at the back and there's like this kind of Futura Black and then a rustic log, looks like log writing. And it's just, 
insane. It's like they didn't know. They didn't know what the Beach Boys were. They didn't believe in them. It was a sign from the company. They did not know what to do. That sounds. Well, we'll send you down to the San Diego Zoo. And we'll photograph you with a bunch of damn goats. I mean, what's that all about? That was the biggest miscarriage of justice of all. All right. Are you ready for number four? Number four. Yeah, number four. All right. Now, you know, number four, um, the best of the Beach Boys, the brother years. Oh, yeah. So, And I have to partner that with number three. Number three is Surf's Up. Surf's Up was this dark blue-green, melancholy, serious, elegiac, nocturnal picture of an Indian. Right. It was uh, based on the end of the trail by James Earl Fraser. He was also the guy that did the Indian on the nickel, by the way. And to me, it's kind of an exhale. Till I die, there's this feeling of, you know, we're growing up, we're looking at life maybe more realistically, but there's a mystical journey to be had, spiritual almost journey to be had. And it, it the cover fit the mood of the record for the most part, I think. The the other uh, number four, the, the best of each boy is the brother years. Really different for me in that the cover was this Indian on a horse looking up to the sun, really bright colors. Whoever designed that, they did a great job. And to me, it represented that other side, that flip side of the Beach Boys, that really super in touch with the sunny spirit inside, but not in a kind of acute way, but in a very kind of a vast and um, a way a way that like a saga or an epic, the whole arc of their lives in our lives is this big, sunny um, intervention of don't forget about joy. And even though joy and love and sunniness was kind of corny for a while in the sort of hip, you know, surfing is over days of the late 60s and early 70s, the Beach Boys were able to believe in it and hold on and be sunny. And we remained, you know, we're still on our horse and we're shining. And to me, that's number three and number four fitting together. We could talk about those two albums for a long time, but I think their covers fit. Surf's up number four. Sometimes I put it up higher than that. The other number two, you ready for that? Yeah. Okay. Number two, Smile. Now, I know it didn't come out at the time that it might have come out, but, but you know, maybe if you look at, if you listen to the music and the lyrics of Van Dyke Parks and Smile, maybe it's more that um, historical kind of the journey from the East Coast to the West Coast. And there's a lot of history and a lot of visualization and a lot of um, incredible visual stuff. But the cover really was the storefront. It was almost making a joke of, album covers it was saying here's the storefront there's a strange things in the window you don't know what you're getting until you get into the store and it was comical and kind of pop and um the music inside was diverse and symphonic and experimental and i just think it was a great entry point it was brian's concept it was he wanted to do the smile shop and I think it, it was it was because he was really into humor albums, like wow. comedy albums. Yeah. And part of that was, I mean, the album was going to have a lot of comedy bits on it, too, that he didn't really know how to fit. Another thing that he didn't know how to fit in there was all these, they recorded hours and hours of comedy oh, bits sure, for, that, sure. that aren't oh. very funny for, for this album. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was commissioned from uh, Frank Holmes, who was friends with Van Dyke oh. Parks. Yeah. Um, and it was based on an abandoned jewelry store oh. uh, near his home in Pasadena. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. But yeah, there's a lot to talk about that. I mean, we're going to talk about that on the show at length, of course, in in, in the oh, future yeah. coming episodes. If but, it had come out, I probably would 
I might have continued being inspired to go on into just album cover art. I wouldn't have been a teacher because yeah. it would have changed the whole arc of my life. So, so I'm glad it didn't come out then because I got to see Brian do it live and that wouldn't have happened either much later. Right. But um, I just, I just think that was a great moment. And you said the, the key point is that Brian, it was Brian's concept. I think the Beach Boys often apparently was an afterthought. They didn't have as much concern about the visuals as maybe, the, let's say, the Beatles did, who were in some kind of design continuum where they were around artists and designers who were always saying, oh, what do you want to do? And of course, John and Paul always had visual ideas. And there's a rumor, I wanted to sh- share this, and you probably know this, there's a rumor that Paul McCartney at one point told Brian Wilson, that the Beach Boys should, quote, pay a little more attention to their album covers. (laughs) Have you heard of that before? No, I haven't. That's great. Well, I wonder if that, if it did happen, I wonder if that's before Smile or after Smile, because certainly Brian had to be looking like, look at Sgt. Pepper's, look at Rubber Soul, look at Revolver, and he had to be looking and thinking about that, um, which I think led in some way to the number one choice I have is Best Beach Boy album cover, which seems to be maybe greater agreement between the uh, different contingencies that make an album cover at the time that they did that. And it seemed agreeable with the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson and the company as well, even though the album was at that time kind of a flop. The number one, do you know which one it's going to be, Wyatt? I think you do. It's Friends, Friends or Sunflower? Okay, you got it. Sunflower. That's my number <laughs> okay. one pick. That's my number one All right. pick. All right. That might surprise some, but to me, in terms of the resonance between the kind of music and the cover and the fold of the images, the, the montage in the, in the center and the back, it was exactly like the music. It, to me, it's kind of the Beach Boys' white album. It has a little bit from everybody. Everybody's individuating. Brian is not absolutely the lead guy in Sunflower in the music. Of course, he's one of the family. And the whole thing is pictured as a family, wrong or right, true or untrue. Everybody has their moment. Um, Dennis is coming forward. Um, Carl certainly is. Al's coming forward. And you see them in their different, say, costumes or individuated personas in, in, on the cover. And I know, um, I know that um, when I listened to that music, it was one of the only albums that I could hold the Beach Boys album in my hands and say, yes, okay, this song. And there's Bruce. And there, you know, Bruce was coming forward. So it all fit. Whereas other albums like Pet Sounds, I would hide the album cover because it had nothing to do with the music. And I would close my eyes and then I would see what I wanted to see. But Sunflower was smack on perfect connection between audio and visual. And that's my number one. Yay. All right. Yeah. So, I mean, Sunflower is um, obviously one of the best Beach Boys records. I know it's your number one or two, and we haven't even talked about the music, but I think, you know, that's obviously part of what goes into this this ranking as well. But Yeah, I've said this before. I think, I think Sunflower is the best, for me, it's the best Beach Boys album. It's the most representative. Yeah. It's the best of all of us. Whereas... Yep. Pet Sounds is Brian Wilson's soul, and the yeah. Beach Boys are his. Who said it? You know, his puppets. Dennis his messengers. Said, yeah, yeah, messengers. Yeah, they're so. But I yeah. think it's it's time for the angels to come forth, and that's what Sunflower is. It's a delivery of all of the different rays of light from each one of the spectral Beach Boys. It was really the last time, and maybe the only time that they ever made a record together as a group, where they were all putting in a lot of create creative energy. 
So I think a lot of the other albums around that time are great, but that album, you know, like you said, you really have Dennis coming into his own as a writer. You've got great Bruce Johnston songs. Um, even oh, though yeah. Carl didn't write anything, he's all over the record. He sings on a ton of those songs, sings lead a lot. Oh, yeah. And you've got, you know, I mean, you've got one of my favorite Mike Love moments ever with All I Want to Do. So I I mean, you've got everybody kind of yeah. putting their... I mean, I have to admit, Mike Love is singing his best on on that album. In many ways, yeah. he is, you know. Um, they're all singing so well. And then the production, you know, Stephen Desper and... Um, it was very odd when I, in my first year in college, like, why did that album not go? Was that, what was the, the deal? The problem got great reviews and Rolling Stone. It didn't have, I mean, in my opinion, it didn't have the right single. Um, they yeah. put out Add Some Music to Your Day in oh, yeah. February. Oh, yeah. That was the opening single. And it just was a little bit too safe. It was a little bit too simple and safe. And just, it was a beautiful, great song. But yeah. in 1970, you know, when you've got, you know, like all this oh, yeah. hard rock music and all this stuff that's kind of, kid the the kids that were listening to the beach boys are in their 20s now and it just wasn't cool anymore like to to right. have this kind of safe soft rock sound i got you but i mean it's just timing was a big part of it wow um, and you know I, I think about my band we went from playing beach boys and beatles and by that point we we got a new guitar player and he wanted to shine so we were playing we didn't know what we were doing we were playing cream and hendrix and stuff like that so it was more yep. heavy hard rock blues bluesy stuff and right so um but i'll tell you what when i was in college and roughing it out that first year or two um the beach boy sunflower saved my life absolutely so yeah a cool thing um about the sunflower cover it was shot by uh ricky martin dean martin's well, son yeah um so i thought that was cool that's um, really cool yeah great photographs oh my gosh it was on Idyllic. a golf course somewhere <laughs> anyway so I don't. Our top five are completely different, and I'll just go okay. over mine. Yeah. My number okay. five is Wild Honey, which I've always loved because it is a it's a picture of a stained glass window in Brian's house, um, yeah. in uh, Bel Air, and I thought that was such a cool, you know, just a simple but really beautiful album cover. The honeybee, the you know that whole thing, and then yeah. uh, my number four yeah. is All Summer Long. Oh yeah. Which. Um, is just super iconic and you got you know kind of all the boys on the beach and with girls and it just really sums up the music and it really goes along really well and i love that one yeah let me throw something in there i i yeah. this is my top 10 and i and i love it more and more and it's been copied so many yeah. times but um the kind of geometric mondrian like uh division of uh photo collage stuff i i love right. the fact that those colors if you look at them you know it's all summer long but it's really you know you know brian wilson it's pointed because it's on the edge it's the end of summer Clearly, it's changing. It's getting cooler. Some are wearing long sleeves. It's probably filmed in the winter, but it's it was, uh, whatever yeah. California winter is. And so there's there's this kind of poignant, again, kind of melancholy feeling like it's almost over and, and um, it's changing. And look at the colors. They're kind of golds and purples and yellows and oranges. And so that purple is this transformative kind of getting cooler color. And so it's not just, yay, it's summertime and we're all happy. It's not the Coco, Kokomo, I call it Kokomoronic music. It's just nostalgic <laughs> Beach Boy pictures, you know, where a lot of their albums in the future are just like nostalgia and self-parody. This is really like, um, we better appreciate it while we can because it's going to leave. And that's so Brian Wilson. It's beautiful. 
moving on, my number three is actually the Beach Boys 1985 self-titled album cover, which, um, okay. you know, the waves in the background. But I don't know. I love it. I love that record, too, and I just think it's it's great. Um, and then my number two is Friends. Um, okay, yeah. I think it's just a beautiful art piece, and it's really indicative of that of the mood of the record, too. It's just kind of, like, peaceful, serene, kind of... Um, and you know it kind of goes into that whole family aspect too they're all there together they're all kind of yeah. just yeah. floating around in this in this magical land i just love the the lettering on it too i think it's it's great um i i agree it's in my top 10 and i'll have to say this i as a watercolor painter i was really inspired by it and i think yeah the albums kind of i see them as a trio there's uh, wild honey and smiley smile and friends and they yeah. all kind of fit into this triad of hey okay we maybe didn't do the great legendary symphonic master work that y'all are thinking about you know what we're just a bunch of guys in a band and we're inside the studio and we're just loving each other and loving it it's just much more intimate the whole thing was yeah. much more intimate it kind of pared down yep. and the covers were a little bit naive like the rousseau painting of the jungle on smiley smile and then this kind of light watercolor they, they were all saying you know leave us alone we're not going to do this thing that's going to stand with Beethoven. We're going to do these beautiful little, you know, busy doing nothing moments that are going to make the little things in your life that much brighter. Um, that album was was um, designed by David McMacken, who also hmm. did um, art for Cat Stevens, The Temptations, oh. and Frank Zappa. Wow. Um, and my number one... Oh, no, wait, can I guess? Can I guess? Yeah, go ahead. It's either Pet Sounds or Beach Boys Love You. <laughs> Am I no, wrong? it's neither. Okay. Yeah, it's neither oh, of those. Okay, never um, mind. It's uh, this is funny, but it's shut down volume two. Oh my gosh! Um, yeah. Okay. So it's the car. It's it's where they're standing with the cars. And for me, the reason I love that that album cover, it's not like it's the greatest design ever, but it's there's something about the color scheme, and there's it's really just about the attitude of it. Like they're in their oh, yeah. car jackets, and they're just hanging out next to like that's Dennis's real car right there and uh, oh. they just look awesome and and you know if I saw those dudes you know hanging out in a parking lot you know with those cars I'd be like man look how cool those guys are um, I, you know you're changing my mind about it because um, I just forget <laughs> about that um, but yeah. you know the the font is tough it's you know sans serif type it is very strong and 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 think about the color you said cool they're all in blue and chrome it's yeah. all chrome and blue they're like monumental yep. it's like a low angle looking up a little bit so it's like this they're just this statue this giant cool statue to that whole period like a monument i i totally agree with i you. just think about it's silly it's the things i romanticize about is like racing cars and going surfing and and getting girls it's just it was just <laughs> incredible to me you know just just such a cool time and such a great yeah, little capsule of the Beach Boys. Yeah, and you can kind of get a little bit of their personalities from it too. Like Dennis is is yeah looking super tough. Brian's looking a little <laughs> bit more reserved. Mike's looking really confident in the middle. Carl's kind of hiding behind Dennis, and Al's kind of off to the side, <laughs> kind of goofy. I just love it. I just it just couldn't get better. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I'm um, I'm gonna wrap this up. Sure. Yeah, I always thought it was interesting. Um, I got a lot of. I read a lot of them, but I get a lot of uh, emails from from either fathers or sons, or sometimes huh. fathers and sons that write in talking about how they both kind of discovered the Beach Boys differently and stuff. So I kind of grew up 
not really having a choice, but just <laughs> being around it, you know, just along with a lot of other music. But, um, yeah, you know, I don't know how I would have, how different I would have ended up without the Beach Boys music or, you know, just that, that musical taste in general that, that you passed down to me. So, um, really glad to have your opinions on here and hopefully we can do it again at some point. But these are obviously conversations that, we have had many times <laughs> so yeah and the, uh, just sort of like on tops of mountains and on islands and you know, yeah. in a studio so, i mean or, and we can yeah i mean we can talk forever about this it's kind of like the whole reason that i started the podcast was that <laughs> jason and i would talk for hours about this stuff and i just said look this is something that <laughs> this is something that we can do but um yeah oh yeah and um like i said you you were a professor for many years, but you also um, have been a really prolific um, watercolorist. Where can people look at some of your stuff? Well, I'm painting all the time now. It's great. It's like I'm making an album. Every time I get 10 or 12 songs together, Wyatt, I mean, I'm sorry, paintings together. I feel like I've made another album in this great room of my life. And if you want to see that room, you go to brentfunderberg.com. And Funderburk is just like your last name, I think. And uh, so, <laughs> yeah. let me say this, Wyatt. It's pretty easy. Let me say this. Your mom and I, are, I mean, we're so proud of you. And um, and I'm really proud, not just not just father-son, but just uh, mano y mano, just man-to-man, just talking about art and music with you because I really respect what you're doing. And you and your guys, Jason and the guys, I just want to say sail on, brothers. You really add sunshine to our lives and uh, keep it up. Thank you very much. Yep, and, absolutely. Um, wouldn't be doing it without you. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to more discussions like this Heck off yeah. the air. Yeah, when we get together probably at Thanksgiving. Yeah, I think we've talked <laughs> um, it out. We probably we probably won't talk at Thanksgiving because we kind of talked it all out now. So, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll hopefully talk to you again at some okay. point. Uh, right. Maybe when we get to uh, the early '70s stuff, that would be a good time to do it. All right. All right. Thanks, Pop. Love okay. You. Love you, too. Bye. Bye. He said, Mayor, I'm going to write, and I'm going to make the greatest rock album. That's when you know, things were starting to get a little bit heavier. And he, he just said, I'm going to do the greatest album. And he did it. I remember when the album was completely finished, and he brought home the demo disc of the album. We just, you know, laid down on the bed and just listened. It was like heaven. I mean, he was so proud. All right. I hope you guys dug that little interview with my pop. We could talk for hours and hours about the Beach Boys. We do, in fact. But um, I especially was interested to hear about his favorite album covers. Um, And uh, I'm interested to hear, since Jason hasn't heard the interview yet, I'm interested to hear Jason's top five album covers. I mean, all right, I'll do I'll do it. Fine, <laughs> fine. If you pressure me. So number five, Endless Summer. Um, I love that. I, it caught my eye as a kid, those weird beards and the drawing and the illustration. I loved it. It was such a curious, weird thing when I'd see that in the record store in the used bin on vinyl when I was like six. I was like, what is this? This is strange. Um but these are the guys that sing surfing USA, but they look like the guys that, you know, are doing like heavy rock. Like this is weird. So that's five. Number four, 
Oh, uh, friends. Um, I love that. I mean, the last record, Explorers Club record, we kind of, you know, which your dad did, um, was kind of a, an homage to that. And I love the, the watercolor feel of that. And not only is that probably my, other than Pet Sounds, my favorite Beach Boys record, it's one of my favorite album covers. So number three is Wild Honey. Um, another of that same era, more illustration. If you're not catching it by now, people, I love illustrated album covers. Um, I love album covers with the photos of the band, but I love illustrations probably a little more to an extent. Wild Honey's great. It's the illustration on the stained glass. I guess it was in Brian's house, right, Wyatt? It was. Yeah. Yeah. And then I love the I love the hand drawn fonts on that are just so great. So number two favorite Beach Boys album cover is would have to be Shut Down Volume Two. Yes. I love that album cover. It's great. It's the dudes in their jackets looking super cool, like we're gonna mow you down four seasons. That's what that album cover is. Yeah. <laughs> um it's the coolest they've ever looked. And and I say that because the Beach Boys, let's be honest, everyone, they never really looked cool in a way. They always had their moments, you know. But this is them as like we are the coolest dudes in America. Okay, and my favorite Beach Boys album cover is All Summer Long. I really love it. I love the collage um, on the first album I made. I totally ripped it off because I love the collage so much. I love the each individual photos of the guys. I love the styles of the clothes they're wearing in the photos. Yeah. And I imagine it was just kind of thrown together, a thrown together thing from photos they'd done from a photo shoot. And it wasn't really a, hey, we're going to make a collage. It was kind of like, what are we going to do? for an album cover. And I know Al missed the photo shoot, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's still my favorite because it just ca- it is the spirit of the band to me, that album cover, everything about it. So those are my favorite Beach Boys album covers. Well, <clears throat> everybody listening knows that um, I <laughs> had four of the same five that you picked. Nice. Um, pretty wild. I mean, and and I know I know you kind of are this way, definitely, Wyatt. But for me, when I I visualize like an album cover of something I love, whenever I hear that album, I can't stop thinking a about the cover, but also about the colors on the album cover. Well, um, sure, yeah. And so you know that's the thing. So I associate those all those songs with that stuff, and and those are always my favorite ones. You know, whenever I listen to them, so. Um, <clears throat> Like when I listen to, you know, shut, uh, not shut down, but when I listen to like, I don't know, the little Deuce Coop album, I kind of don't really think about that cover that much, but, but those other ones really sit with me. I don't know. That's a weird thing, but Hey, that's what makes great album. I'm a big album art person. So that's a thing that I really care about. It has to be great as great as the music on the disc. Speaking of great music, we are continuing dissecting the album called Pet Sounds. This week, we're talking about a song called God Only Knows. Nice, nice, This song was written by Brian Wilson and Tony Asher and arranged and produced by Brian Wilson. On March 10th, 1966, at Western Recorders, engineered by Chuck Britz, 
Brian brought in the wrecking crew at 12.30 a.m. And they recorded until 4.30 in the morning. Short session. Yeah, but pretty crazy that they recorded so late. Um, I guess they had to cram it in whenever they could, you know. Um, and we'll talk about well, that I, later. Well, I heard that I heard that Brian liked to record that time anyway. Mm-hmm. He was a and, night owl. Yeah, and like, what a per- what a perfect time to record that song. Oh yeah, this particular track took some rehearsals. Uh, you can hear them spend a lot of time on the instrumental break, which had some strange changes and kind of uh, changed rhythms um, from from kind of a swing you know, triplet feel to a standard eighth note feel. Um, so they were going over that and, um, there's a great little part where they're not quite getting it right. And, uh, Don Randy, the keyboard player is playing the upright piano with the strings taped down with masking tape, which gave it that awesome sound. He kind of, um, suggested that they play it more staccato and it gave it that really strong kind of pronounced classical feel to it. Well, that that part, it was... And, and it was bothering Brian, and we had done it a number of times. And my suggestion was, Brian, why don't we play it short? He said, what do you mean? Almost pizzicato. Brian? Yeah. Why don't we do it short? Try it. That's nice. Let's make it. Shows how much they really did together in the studio and kind of collaborated. Oh yeah. Um, in the rehearsal part of the of the process, which, like I said, we don't really get to hear that often, so it's really cool. On the horns, you've got alto flutes and flutes by Jim Horn, Bill Green, clarinet by Jay Migliori bass clarinet, um, and clarinet by Leonard Hartman. Take one, God only knows. The track starts off with the upright piano, like I said, with Don Randy and the harpsichord by Larry Nechtel. Uh, You've got the picked Fender bass by Ray Pullman and the upright bass by Lyle Ritz. And then um, on the drums and sleigh bells, you've got Hal Blaine, of course. And then playing the little clip clops that's Jim Gordon, and those are actual, the, those are actually plastic orange juice cups that he's playing on. And then you've got Terry Melcher, of course, playing tambourine on this track. And then playing accordion, you've got Carl Fortina and Frank Morocco. And the accordion, so can you t- blend those notes into the changes? Sort of. Okay, here we go. Take um, so yeah, from the intro, you've got the French horn playing the motif that we're all very familiar with that comes back later on several times. Carl Wilson and Carol Kay are playing the 12-string guitar on this track. I had no idea that Carol Kay played guitar on this track. 
Pretty cool. Awesome. Violins by Sid Sharp and Leonard Malarski. Viola by Daryl Terwilliger. And cello by Jesse Ehrlich. Ray? I mean, Ray. Hey, say, Ray. Could you, uh, your name is Hell. Could you play the Tom? Do, 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 do. (laughs) The funniest thing is uh, on take 11, Lyle Ritz starts cracking up about something like he just can't stop laughing. Go, please. Come on. Wait a minute. Lyle's completely destroyed. (laughs) That's it for Lyle. Because he played really happy notes, that's for sure. Come on, please, now. Brian's trying to be really playful, but he's also kind of commanding the session and saying, let's get this going, Get get your stuff together. Hey, what are you doing, Hal, for Christ's sake? By take 20, you've got the master take. The thing that drives the track for me is the uh, the harpsichord and then also the bass. I mean, obviously, like, I'm going to go f- straight to that because I'm a bass player, but, I mean, the bass playing and the bass part is unbelievable on this song. It makes the track, man. It really does. I mean, it's one of the things that just sets this song apart from other pop songs and, and gave it really an otherworldly feel. I mean, the chord progression is already strange, but then having the bass play almost like a measure behind the rest of the group, playing thirds and fifths and sevenths and in almost a different key at times, it's always been something that I was drawn to. It's just kind of hard to tell where the song is going, but... You know, just listening to the music itself, like, I was listening to this track, um, preparing for this and making my notes, and I was crying, just like, I could not believe, like, how interesting and how pretty and strange this track is. Aside from the lyrics, aside from the vocals, which we'll talk about in a minute here, and the, and the, everything else about it, this track alone is a masterful work of art that really only Lennon and McCartney and a few other people have ever equaled. Let me tell you something about God Only Knows. We didn't know the title of that. So when we were playing it, you knew it was kind of a very special song, just the way it's chorded from nothing else. I mean, you're saying, oh my God, this is absolutely beautiful.
I, I just don't know what else to say about it that I can put into words in the English language. You know what I mean? Like it's just it it just brings me to a place that I can't explain from a musical standpoint. Um, and I've heard a lot of music, and I still have never heard anything like this. And just like tears welling up behind your eyes. I mean, the whole song is just this crazy barrage of emotion, but there is so much quietness in this track. Uh, but uh, anyway, so uh, the one thing about the track that uh, I wanted to mention is that they did an overdub of a saxophone solo. <laughs> it was a failed experiment that we... Jarring, jarring. Yeah, that, that luckily we, we can hear... Um, as a uh, as an educational piece now, but it uh, <laughs> it never made the record. Bill Green played the saxophone solo, and it, I liken that to, you know, like an actor that was in, you know, a Martin Scorsese movie that their scene got cut or cut or something. You know what I mean? Like this poor yeah. guy, like he played the saxophone solo on the greatest song ever written, <laughs> and it got cut. So he probably tells people all the time. He's like, yeah, well, I played saxophone on God Only Knows, but, you know, you won't hear it, but it's there. If you get the box set, you can hear me. Uh, but anyway, um, so I don't know if like Brian got any sleep that night, um, because they were back doing several songs of vocals at Columbia studio that same day. They did start doing vocals for this track on March 10th, uh, and then came back and finished them on April 11th. So here's where there's a little bit of controversy. And I think that, uh, you and I are in agreement about this, um, on the pet sounds box set, there is a track that's labeled as um, God Only Knows, Brian Sings Lead. I think David Leaf was the one who labeled this originally, and it has been um, passed around and labeled as such um, in other instances since then. Um, but upon doing my own research and then just kind of critical listening and you know, using every resource that I have, I can definitively say it's not Brian singing. It is Carl. Um, and I think it was a little bit rushed, and I think everybody was a little bit tired. Um, and it sounds very different. There's a different kind of delay, echo on the vocal. But yeah, I mean, I'm 99% sure that it's still Carl. And some people think that it may be Carl with Brian doubling, but I'm pretty certain that it is just Carl. It always sounded different. It never sounded necessarily like Brian to me. I'm always like, really? Is that him just trying to imitate Carl? That's kind of weird. Yeah. But I mean, you know, in, in passing glance, you can say, oh, yeah, that sounds like, okay, cool, Brian did it. But then right. if you really dig in and listen like you did, and then I think you and I talked about this a few months ago, and I did the same. Yeah. Uh, yeah, man, I'm with you. I never gave any thought to who would actually, you know, sing lead on what song. The only exception to that I recall is that when we were writing God Only Knows, I can remember Brian at some point saying, 
Carl's going to sing this and it's going to be fantastic. I said, you know, this would be really good for Carl. And he goes, you're right, it would be good for Carl. I said, no, maybe I should do it. And he goes, no, Carl. So we taught it to Carl and he went in there and knocked it out. I may not always love you, but long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. God only knows what I'd be without you. On April 11th, they came in and did the, the lead vocal again with Carl, double-tracked, and then the bridge vocals, which was Bruce Johnston, Carl Wilson, and Brian Wilson. There is a difference in the vocal on the mono and stereo version. On the mono version, on the final tag, um, it is Brian doing the lead part and then Bruce following, and then Brian also doing the high um, part at the end. Uh, On the stereo mix, it's Carl doing the lead part and then Bruce following. God only knows what I'd be without God only knows what I'd be without God only knows what I'd be without There is an extended tag that was not released officially, but it came out years later, um, again on the box set, where you've got uh, a bigger vocal group doing an outro and it was um bruce carl brian terry melcher and uh diane and marilyn the honeys mm-hmm. and um i'm glad it didn't make the final mix because it's just too much it's too it's, much yeah it's yeah it's just a little bit over over the top Tony about an hour to write. It came very fast. It came just like that. And he and I were both astonished with it. We, we said, we have a classic song on our hands here. And I, I almost got tears. I mean, it was like a beautiful tune that we had written together, you know. I mean, the song itself kind of is full of doubt and then also very sure of itself all at the same time. It's really one of those weird, it's one of those weird things, those weird dualities that Brian embraces. One of the greatest love songs of all time begins with I may not always love you, which is and you know it's the antithesis of what people want in a love song. Brian might have said at the time, what? <laughs> you know, but he would only have said it once and if I said don't worry about it Brian, it's that's a good line, he would have said, okay. And then he would listen to it a few times and said, yeah, I like it. I think I may not always love you was the great line yeah, that he wrote. And then it turns it around saying, but as long as there are stars above you, you'll never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. And then God only knows what I'd be without you uh, is a very, it's, it's a very interesting phrase, especially because 
at the time it was kind of controversial to say God in a song. And I even heard that several radio stations wouldn't play the song because it was blasphemy. And Marilyn Wilson said, the first time I heard it, Brian played it for me at the piano and I went, oh my God, he's talking about God in a record. It was pretty daring to me. And it was another time I thought to myself, oh boy, he's really taking a chance. I thought it was almost too religious, too square. Yes, it was so great that he would say it and not be intimidated by what anybody else would think of the words or what he meant. And we did have this concern about using the word God in the lyric at that time. It was, you know, a relatively controversial thing. And I think we would have given it up if we could have come up with absolutely anything else that w would have satisfied us. Uh, Mike Love said that they originally were kidding around and said they were going to call it Fred Only Knows. <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh my gosh. It would be it would be lost on everyone. Brian says, God only knows was a vision that Tony and I had. It's like being blind, but in being blind you can see more. You close your eyes. You're able to see a place or something that's happening. I'm proud of lots of my songs, but God only knows is one of the ones I'm most proud of because there's a real message in it. And Tony Asher says, This is the one song that I thought would be a hit record because it was so incredibly beautiful. I was concerned that maybe the lyrics weren't up to the same level as the music. God Only Knows is, to me, one of the great songs of our time. I mean, the great songs. Not because I wrote the lyrics, but because it's an amazing piece of music that we were able to write a very compelling lyric to. It's the simplicity, the inference that I am who I am because of you that makes it very personal and tender. You know, it's just a, a very incredible piece of music. It's so brilliantly put together. And uh, I got to sing it. Uh, he thought that Carl's voice would be perfect for it, and it was. I mean, Carl sings it beautifully, um, and it was a staple of their live show for many, many years. And um, even after Carl's passing, they still play it and do a nice tribute to Carl, which is always beautiful. And I always think of Carl, obviously, when, when I hear this song. And that motif that we hear at the intro with the French horn is repeated a couple times um, in the strings and in the flutes, and then at the end with Brian singing it. Um, um, you know, what would I be without you? And then the French horn repeating him in a round. Uh, it's just, it's really awesome. You know, I really don't have a lot to add to the conversation about this, Wyatt, because this song is one of those songs that it speaks for itself. I mean, it's brilliant. Carl's lead vocal is brilliant. The composition of the music is unmatchable the lyrics are as good as the music um yeah i mean it's perfect But long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. God only knows what I'd be without you. If you should ever leave me, will life would still go on, believe me. Show nothing to me So what good would living do me? God only knows what I'd be without you 
This is uh, the biggest 10 out of 10 for me. Yeah, I mean, it's the easiest 10 out of 10 that we've ever had. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a song that de- kind of defines the band now. And I think we've talked about this a little bit. But, you know, they did that thing a few years ago with Brian singing this song with all the UK stars and the BBC, and they did yeah. a commercial with it. Um, this is the song you hear in movies along with good vibrations, I suppose. And wouldn't it be nice? Those three, it's really interesting how, as we've kind of continued on through history and you guys can write in or call in and disagree with me, but those three songs I just named, including this one are what defines the band. Now God only knows is probably the definitive. This is our artistic statement. This is the thing to be, to remember this band by initially, Brian, consider releasing this as a Carl Wilson single, which is really interesting because they did have a Brian Wilson single with Caroline No, but it was released as the B-side of the American Wouldn't It Be Nice single on July 11th. In other territories, the song was the A-side. It only reached 39 on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1966, but in Europe, treated as the A-side, it was a success. peaked at number two in the U.K., so um, really, really popular overseas, and we start to see um, the shift from the Beach Boys' popularity being America's band to being um, more beloved in Europe, actually. Um, oh, yeah. Kind of around this time and then going into the Smile era. Like you said, this is one of those songs that kind of defines the Beach Boys, and it's one of those songs that I think if people hear, like whether it's in the movie Boogie Nights or in the Toy Story 4 movie. You know what I mean? Like new generations are going to hear this song and have no idea that it's the Beach Boys, but be like, oh, wow, that's the Beach Boys? Like what album is that? Oh, it's Pet Sounds? Oh, I got to listen to this. So it's a definitely an entryway to um, how wonderful the Beach Boys music is. But uh, this it inspired a lot of other artists, and we talked about Paul McCartney, and he's definitely the one that everybody points to when they talk about this song because it, He's said that it's his favorite song, and for maybe the best pop songwriter of all time, Paul McCartney. Uh, But I wanted to also read a quote from your boy, Jimmy Webb. Just the best. Um, He says, I love God Only Knows, and it's bow to the Baroque that goes all the way back to 1740 and Bach. It represents the whole tradition of liturgical music that I feel is a spiritual part of Brian's music. 100%. And Carl's singing is pretty much at its pinnacle. It's as good as it ever got. It's really interesting because we were talking about how unique and brilliant this track is, and it is. I mean, all the weird things about it. 
But the core of it is what Jimmy's saying. It's very almost him-like, and I know that was all purposeful by Brian. So it kind of just speaks to the greatness where it is a groundbreaking, really unique track. But at the same time, it's something that in a way has always existed. You know what I mean? That's just a basic truth about music is that music is it's a, um, an expression of spirit. And it's a living expression. So it, is, it has a real uh, people connect to it because people are spirit. Another one of, of, of my favorite songwriters, Margot Gurian, started her entire career as a pop songwriter um, because of this song. She said that uh, a friend played it for her and she immediately went out and bought it and then sat down and wrote her song, Think of Rain. But yeah, we've talked so much about this album and this song now. Um, we've only got two songs left. It's pretty crazy. Um, we're going to hit both of them next week. How she boogalooed it, right? Yeah. <sighs> but thanks for sticking with us. Um, if you've been here since the beginning, really appreciate the support. Um, if you're interested in getting some more Juicy Beach Boys content, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash sailon. Please check us out on social media, Sailon Sounds on Instagram and Twitter. Be on the lookout for Jason's new Elvis podcast coming soon. Watch out, people. Uh, I'll tell you about that later. It's, it's, it's an interesting little one. Yeah, once it once we get once we get a, a product, we'll we'll uh we'll we'll talk about it. But um just be be ready for Accepted why it's challenged. The first episode is all about Elvis's hair, according to Jason. So we're looking forward to that. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> man, this is a long episode. All right. Thanks to Will C. for the wonderful background music. And until next time, sail on, sailors. <laughs>